So anyone see the blood moon last weekend? It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, we came out of church after cleaning up a little bit, and it was just hovering over the rooftops on my, on my way home, and it looked so perfect and round and smooth. Then we, we got home, and our neighbors across the street have binoculars and a telescope, so we got to see it with different magnification. It was amazing how when you really look up close, the moon is so pitted with these gigantic craters and things like that. And it made me think of, um, you know, I heard one time that if the, the earth was shrunk down to the size of a billiard ball, uh, that it, the earth would actually be smoother than a billiard ball. And I looked it up on scopes and everything, and, and it is true that, I know, I know, this, here's a cue ball right here. It is so smooth, and yet the earth to scale, actually, it, thinking, of it, thinking of it the other way around, if you were to take this billiard ball and make it the size of the earth, it would have mountains that are higher than Mount Everest and valleys and cre- uh, uh, crevices that are lower than the uh, Mariana Trenches deep in our own ocean. So it's pretty amazing. It all depends how close you want to look at it, right? Um, we've been exploring the book of Exodus. I'm going to put this here. Hopefully that won't roll off. We've been exploring the book of Exodus this fall, uh, and for the past couple weeks, we have been focusing on the plague uh, narratives. And one way to look at the plague narratives is from a great distance, of seeing them as just this smooth, round, perfect thing. Uh, We could see the smooth surface of a perfect unit of ten plagues, symbolizing totality. Ten in the ancient world was this great, perfect number of, uh, uh, of totality. Uh, it's the totality of God's sovereignty over Egypt and her gods. Looking at the plagues from this view, we might see a broad-sweeping theme of God's power to deliver Egypt, or Israel from Egypt. Of the ten plagues that bring people out to a broad and spacious land where they receive the ten commandments. So we get this nice balance when we look at the ten plagues from afar. And if we were to look at the plagues from afar like that and just seeing the, you know, from the, a distance the big picture, that would be a valid reading of Scripture. All right. Another way to read the plagues would be to look at them through a microscope. The depths would be endless. We could explore the obvious tension between God's sovereignty and human choices. Does Pharaoh harden his heart or does God harden his heart? Yes, would be the answer. What, what are the scientific explanations for the plagues, and do they really matter, yes or no? Uh, we could look at the minutia of Hebrew wordplay, which if you ever want to talk about that sometime, is really fun. The theological significance of how things are said, not just what is said. The floor is as deep as you're willing to look, which is one thing I love about the Bible. You, you can just never tap it all. But if we were to look at the plagues that way, uh, this would quickly turn into more of a class or a seminar and less a preaching moment. So what I've tried to do is move through the material slowly um, and look at it more than just um, at a minutia level, more than just a big picture. We're just like, have you guys seen like uh, Google Maps, uh, Sky View, or, or even Apple Maps has that now in a few big cities, and you can kind of like soar over San Francisco, and you stop for a minute over like the Transamerica Tower, and go over the Golden Gate. That's kind of what we're doing with the plagues. I'm just taking us on a little tour and showing us some of the highlights, digging down a little bit, and then we move on, right? Thus far, we've discovered, uh, together we've discovered, that the plagues are more than mere historical events. They're historical events, but they have a theological purpose as well. 
So two weeks ago, we discovered that the Nile represented the heartbeat of Egypt's religious worldview. By showing his mastery over the waters of the Nile, Yahweh showed that Egypt's gods don't give life. The message from those first three plagues, water to blood and frogs from the Nile and gnats, is that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is the God who gives life. In the second three plagues, we see Yahweh confront Pharaoh over who has the right to judge. Flies, pestilence, boils, these are signs of judgment. Pharaoh thought that his gods gave him the power and authority to judge anyone in his country. And Yahweh proved otherwise. The authority to judge is God's alone. And as a side note, we saw in that that week uh, that God is also a just judge. So thank goodness that he alone has the authority to judge. And this evening, we look at the last set of three plagues before we go on to the tenth and final, which is it's standalone, it's its own thing. These three plagues that we're going to look at tonight, hail, locusts, and darkness, take up more text, like there's more words to describe these three plagues than all of the other ones. So I'm not going to read the whole thing in its entirety. You would really be nodding off, I think. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the, the plague about the hail, all all together. And I'm going to pause as we go through and just make a few comments. Then I'm going to skip the one about the locusts, but if you're a big bug person, don't worry, I'm going to talk about it in the sermon, and then I'll read the part about the, the darkness, okay? So, if you are able, would you please stand with me? That'll help you stay awake, too. And we're going to read uh, this account. It starts on page 64 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to read along. And it's at the bottom left-hand side. I'm going to start in chapter 9, verse 13. So this is right after the plague of boils. Um, God makes the plague go away. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Just a little side note there. That word worship means serve. Literally in Hebrew, it's serve. Let them serve me. Ironically, right, Egypt has enslaved Israel so that they serve as slaves to Pharaoh. And and Yahweh wants them released so they can go and serve him alone in freedom. Okay, if they don't do that, I'm at the top of the page now. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed where? In all the earth. This is not just about the people of God learning who Yahweh is. This has always been about the world knowing who God is. Okay, you still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Given, by the way, it was founded at like 3200 BC. That's a long time. Okay, I digress. Uh, Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have into... Uh, everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and it's still out on the field and they will die. Check this out now. 
those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and their livestock in the field. A couple comments there. Clearly, there are some people in Egypt at this time who may not have feared the Lord, but they were getting to, to discover that they should fear the word of the Lord. That means revere or respect or believe that what he says is going to happen is going to happen. They've had six plagues to learn that. These plague narratives overtly focus on the fact that God is the God of Israel and delivers Israel and that Pharaoh is going to serve punishment for the things he's done. However, that doesn't mean that some of the Egyptians didn't turn and come to at least trust in this word. That part is just not highlighted in the story. But this is interesting. We think uh, animals have shelters because we up in the north, in the north of the wall, we have these barns and things where animals live. In that climate, animals never were inside. So in order for these um, officials of Pharaoh to bring their animals inside, they either had to put them in barns where there was room because the grain had dwindled down or into their actual places of residence, okay? So this is a big, like, we're really trusting that something is going to happen here. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall over all of Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place that it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is, on the, is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Wow, did Pharaoh repent here? This is interesting stuff. Pharaoh confesses, which is the first step of repentance. But he confesses to the point of, okay, I screwed up, and I don't really like the consequences. Would you please make it stop? Pray to your God for me. But he doesn't come to grips with the full turning. He doesn't say, I screwed up, and I want to change my ways. There's a big difference uh, between confession and repentance. Repe confession's great. It's on the road to repentance. But uh, we, I think we need to be careful of that because all of us have these elements in our lives where we, we screw up in some of the same ways. And we can get just kind of accustomed, like, oh, that's the thing I screw up on. Sorry again, God. Um, but then that next step is to invite him. Lord, would you help me to change? Would you help me to, um, to become a different person, to have different habits? So anyway, just offer that out. Okay, Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still don't fear the Lord, God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. That's what the locusts are for. 
Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. And he and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Skipping the locusts and going to the plagues on page, uh, uh, darkness on 66. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. That's a funny translation. I'm not really going to get to it later. Um, one way to think about that is, you know, so dark that you can kind of almost feel it. If you've been in a cave before and they shut the lights off, that's what it is. But more uh, accurately, this is probably darkness that causes you to feel about or to grope for things because you can't see anything. Just so you, yeah. It wasn't like oatmeal that covered everything that they had to like, yeah, feel it. Okay. Where am I? No one could see anyone Oh, wait. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh, I I know, why didn't they just like move toward the light? I don't know. It's kind of the point of the narrative is that God can control this darkness for uh, over the Egyptians. Okay. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. It's kind of a problem, A, because God said, I want you all to leave, including your herds. And you can't really do sacrifices without the animal part, right? But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we're to use uh, to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure that you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. (laughs) Just as you say, Moses replied, I will not appear before you again. Hmm. Lord, uh, we are confronted yet again with an amazing story. Amazing in the sense of uh, fantastic, of um, uh, the, the mastery you have over the created world. Is this something we don't think about very often? We don't experience on a regular basis, if at all. Um, and we're confronted with questions, um, questions that maybe the text wasn't designed to answer. And we come as people of faith, trusting that this isn't just a history lesson but it is the word of God. And so we pray for your help to hear what it is you have to say for us in Bellingham on, uh, on October the 4th, 2015. Thank you in advance, Holy Spirit, for your ministry that can take a single text or a single word or a single sermon and let it speak to so many different people in different situations. We pray you would do that for us today. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to walk through these plagues and look at them at two levels. One is the, just the sheer physical, this is weird, that hail is falling and locusts and stuff. And then we're going to look at it from the theological level. And the first thing I think is important for us to do 
uh, is to sit just for a moment with the horror or what how horrifying it would have been to sit through these actual plagues. You know, I read the plague narrative, um, Samara calls it, I want the frog story at night, the Jesus storybook Bible. Um, and it, it, it's kind of cute. It's like a cutified story of, you know, frogs in your hair and then it rhymes. And in a way, it's a little bit humorous. And certainly the, the Israelites, when they are worshiping God in the wilderness and are thinking back to these horrible taskmasters who abused them and treated them um, like dirt, there is uh, some poetic irony there that, you know, these Egyptian superpower had to deal with with frogs in their soup and things like that. Um, But let's not try and sanitize this story. This this would have been absolutely horrifying. Um, It's difficult, especially for us in the Northwest, to conceive of how bad, uh, you know, a hailstorm would be. We we, we get little BB-sized hail. Um, or locusts. We don't really have uh, the huge locust problems here. Um, but ask someone from Texas or Oklahoma about hailstorms that send golf ball-sized hailstones uh, raining at you from the sky, and you'll get a different story. In fact, just a couple months ago, I saw a car with Texas plates here in Bellingham, and it, the car looked like a golf ball. It had so many pockmarks all, all around it, divots. Hailstorms occur around the world each year that that cause loss of life. Um, and hail, hail falls at just over 110 miles an hour. And even in this uh, last couple of decades, scientists have, have recorded hailstorms where, where some of the stones are up to two pounds in, in weight. I mean, imagine a two-pound hailstone, let alone many of them going 110 miles an hour out of the sky, randomly like crashing. Into, that, that would hurt. That would kill you if it hit your head. Now imagine what a hailstorm of biblical proportions would be like to a people who are simply going about their daily lives. M- many of the, um, the, the poorer people just had like leather roofs on their, in their tents. Not everyone lived in a, you know, a sturdy building like we're used to living in. It, it would be crazy. Think of the crops that people so diligently nurtured from seed to, uh, you know, and, and brought up to uh, the, almost the time of the harvest here, and it would be gone in a matter of less than a half an hour if, if a hailstorm like that happened uh, in, in Egypt. Um, the, the barley and the flax that were just about ripe, just about ready to be harvested, destroyed, and I bet you the people were thinking, oh, at least we sell the wheat. The wheat's coming on in a couple weeks, and we'll be able to harvest that. Enter the locusts, though. Locusts are genetically the same as a grasshopper. Typically what happens, I'm learning all this stuff as I prepare for these sermons, typically what happens with a grasshopper is, you know, of all the thousands and thousands of larvae, a grasshopper emerges in a handful. uh, uh, So out of a thousand larvae, you might get 10 to 20 grasshoppers that actually make it uh, into becoming little bugs that that bounce around. They're light green in color, and they're pretty docile. You know, we catch them as kids and all that kind of stuff. And they eat stuff, but it's not that big a deal. But every once in a while, the conditions exist where hundreds out of every thousand of grasshoppers survive. And they begin to come out of their larval state, and when they rub each other as they develop their shells, they turn from light color to dark brown. And serotonin is released in their chemical makeup, and they become nutso. And they, first of all, they become very uh, sexually active, and they just make more and more grasshoppers, and more and more they become locusts. And then they go crazy, and they swarm. And in fact, between 19... Um, 66 and 1969 on the continent of Africa, a swarm grew from 2 billion uh, locusts to, uh, to 30 billion locusts in that span and spanned a, an area of 1,900 miles. 
and just friend, in a frenzy just shoot up every plant and then just move from place to place to place to place. So that is what we're talking about here, like crazy horny grasshoppers that just go crazy and expand everywhere and just rah, like a, a lawnmower from the sky coming towards your crops. I can't believe I just said that. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so Yahweh causes this massive uh, cloud, basically, of, of, of swarming locusts to devour what was left of, of the flax and barley and certainly all that fresh new wheat. And finally, darkness. And this one might be the hardest one for, uh, it is the hardest one for me to comprehend. I'd be pretty freaked out by giant hail. I'd be pretty freaked out by locusts. But darkness, at least for uh, the first day, would be, I've got, we've got flashlights, we've got electricity, we've got, many people have generators. We have, we're so used to artificial light that darkness isn't a big deal. Uh, in fact, uh, with young kids, we prefer sometimes to travel at night because they sleep, you know, so you just get in the car and you go all night to your destination. People almost never traveled at night in the ancient world. Um, first of all, they were afraid of the moon. A full moon, I know to me, it seems like, oh, that would offer a lot of light, but people thought that it caused lunacy, which is where we get the word lunatic, that, that the moon, the brighter and bigger it was, actually could make you insane and go crazy. Um, the only people that traveled at night were Bedouins and people who were suspicious. So to have just complete darkness, and the only thing you had back then was an oil lamp, and reflectors weren't invented yet, so you couldn't, yet they didn't have the technology to project a beam. So, you know, like, I've got a little LED flashlight that's like, I don't know, over a thousand candle power. And they literally have one candle power that might create a little orb of light around them, but you can't project that light. And so people would just be horrified of three days of darkness. Now, three plagues, three horrible things, Here's what I think is going on. In the first three plagues, Yahweh, of course, is showing that he, and not Pharaoh, and not Pharaoh's gods, that he alone is the God of life. In the second three plagues, Yahweh is showing that he, not Pharaoh, is the only God with authority to judge. And here, Yahweh is challenging Pharaoh and Egypt's gods and their belief that Egypt... And their gods actually were the gods that provided for the people. Here's why I think that. The Egyptian god of the harvest was known as Min, M-I-N. Here it is. Joe's going to put it up there. Pretty soon. Yeah. Anyway, this guy is the god of... Um, male fertility, which is why I'm only showing you the chest and above. You can imagine what he looks like in e Egyptian art below the waist. Um, it's definitely PG-13 or above. So you can look at that on Google if you want. It's a strange thing if you do. But anyway, um, that's mean. And um, he, con he was the god they thought would control the weather, specifically the wind and the rain and the hail. He was responsible in the Egyptian mindset for the growth of crops and the harvest in particular. And each year, here's an interesting factoid, each year between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, there was a, a few-week period, they would throw a huge festival in Mean's honor uh, as thanks for the barley and thanks in advance for the wheat. And if our timing is right on this plague of the hail and locusts, that's exactly when those two plagues happen, right at the right before harvest of the barley and right before the wheat harvest. It would be right at the festival 
of, uh, of me. And I, I think that what's going on here is a challenge to um, the perception that Mean was the God who provided for Egypt. And Yahweh's saying, no, I'm actually showing your God up right now. He is not the one who provides for you. At the same time that Egyptian weather was out of control and their crops and animals are dying, the Israelite livestock and crops were just fine. And the message is obvious. Yahweh is the God who can provide for his people. Pharaoh cannot provide for his people. And finally, the darkening of the sky was the biggest statement thus far because the supreme god of Egyptian gods was Ra, the sun god. And here's a slide of Ra, what he looks like. And you'll see this is a pretty ancient depiction. He's, got a, he's the one on the left sitting down. And he's got a falcon head. And uh, that round thing on, on top of his head is the sun. And he's got his staff showing power. Uh, and one of the other symbols is the uh, kind of the whip thing as we get the flies off of, you know. And uh, so that's showing power. Now, let, let me show you a more stylized version. And here, here's a later depiction of Ra. And again, you see the sundial on top of his head and that cobra. Remember, that is the god that protects the lower, um, lower Egypt, which is where the Heliopolis, the capital uh, of Ra, would have been at the Nile Delta. He's got his staff representing his power, and he's got in his left hand there that onk. Remember, the key of, of life, the key of the Nile. And so um, that, is, that is Ra. His cult, his, his religious group, was so popular that the dynasty just before Exodus, um, some scholars argue that Egypt, in practical terms, was actually monotheistic. I mean, even though they had many gods, the cult of Ra was so prevalent that it was, al- it was almost as if they were monotheistic for a while. Now, here's why any of this is important to our story. First, Ra was the god of the sun, which provided life-giving rays that in turn provided food for the nation. Second, Ra was the most powerful god in the Egyptian pantheon. And third, Pharaoh was viewed as the son of Ra, which is very convenient if you want people to be afraid of you. You just say, I'm the son of the most powerful god you can imagine— you don't want to mess with me. The point of the plague of darkness is that Yahweh has power to completely silence the most powerful God that the Egyptians could think of. Egypt was an extremely prideful nation. Even as far back in time as the Exodus, Egypt had already been a civilized nation for over 1,500 years. By the time of the Exodus, which was a long time ago, It's so ancient. Their location on the Nile Delta gave them exclusive access to the fertile land, um, the most fertile land in the known world. And in fact, many times when other countries, for example, Palestine, there was a great drought that brought Joseph and his his brothers down into Egypt to buy food. In other places where food wouldn't survive, Egypt had a built-in irrigation system in the Nile and fertile ground all around it. The Egyptians, actually, this is kind of funny. Um, Dessa, maybe we can look at this a little bit later because you're an archaeology person. But we've actually found poems from the Egyptians that they're, they're kind of like snarky poems. And they make fun of the, the, the uh, countries up in Palestine and stuff like that that rely on rainwater for their irrigation. And they think, oh, they say things like, your gods are so puny, you have to rely on fickle rainwater. We have the Nile that's always like, you know, a, a consistent source. Pride and affluence have a way of masking reality. 
Pharaoh saw that Yahweh was causing problems, but he didn't grasp that the God of these Hebrew slaves could possibly be worth heeding long term, let alone worshiping. What kind of God was he anyway to allow his people to be enslaved for 400 years in the first place? Where was this Yahweh for over a thousand years when Egypt was so prosperous without him? Pride and arrogance made it difficult for Pharaoh to do anything else besides trust in what he'd always known. And here's what he'd always known. The Nile always floods. It always recedes. The crops will always come back. Pharaoh will always sit on the throne. Our gods will always reign supreme. And we are the best nation in the world. What up? How could he see anything else? It had been like that for millennia. And I I just was thinking about that from our perspective as Americans, fairly affluent culture and a powerful nation. Now, the U.S. pales into comparison uh, to Egypt in that we've only been a nation like just over 200 years. I mean, we don't have the longevity Egypt has, but we are, uh, many economists say, the most wealthy nation that has ever existed, even for inflation and all of that. We are certainly one of the most influential nations for good or ill in the world, and we have the most, if not one of, you know, the most powerful military complexes in the entire world. When the stock market tanked in recent history, I remember people that are getting ready to retire were a bit nervous about that, but most people who are a little bit younger were like, oh, that's too bad. We'll just wait because we know it's going to come back. It's almost just a blip. Just people just think, it's always going to be this way. We're Americans. But Jerome thought the same thing. As Christians in this culture, it's hard to know when we're trusting God to provide and when we're just trusting in the machine that is America to provide for us. How do we know if we're truly trusting God? I was actually, when I first read this text several weeks ago, that's the question that I thought this text was presenting. As I dug into it this week, I want to say to you, I don't think that's the question that this text is asking. I think it's an important question. How do we know if we're trusting God? How do we know if we're just trusting in X, Y, and Z? Valid question. Ask it on your own time. I don't think that's the question here. See, so often Christians, we, talk about trusting God as being the avenue to provision and to blessing. And for sure, there have been times in my life where I had two decisions. One decision, do the, the um, kind of the slam dunk. This is what the world would do, and I would have probably been more secure, financial, all these kind of things. And then there was the avenue that I believe God was calling me to do. Ambiguous end game. Not really the smart move financially. And walk through that door with Corey. And, you know, you just get to see God provide in all these amazing ways I wouldn't have recognized if I'd done the safe route. So, uh, listen, trusting God is the way to go. But in this story, I think the message is more foundational than that. In this story, Egypt is learning a lesson about who Yahweh is. They're learning that the gods they have been trusting in are false and powerless compared to Yahweh. But the story mainly isn't negative. It isn't mainly about Egypt's gods are not real. 
I want to argue that this story is mainly positive. You see, the question for me is, if Egypt's gods are not the ones providing for Egypt all those years, then who on earth was it? Psalm 104 tells us. The psalm that Dessa read earlier. It's Yahweh who all along provides all of these good things for the Egyptians and the Israelites and everybody. It's Yahweh who created all things and he sustains all things. In Psalm 104, it talks about how God provides food for even the mighty lions. Why that line? Because the lion in Palestine was the most powerful creature you could possibly imagine that roamed the earth. And even that mighty, it says young lion even, at the height of its power and prowess, even the mighty lion gets its food from the hand of God. God provides the good things in life, the harvest, the fruit of the, vo- of the vine that makes glad the hearts of men and women. Jesus tells us that he, the Father, causes the sun and the rain to shine and to fall on the righteous and the evil. It's right in the Sermon on the Mount. I think foundationally what this text says is whether you trust God or not, he provides. Think of uh, some of the amazing stories of Scripture. And let's just start with this one right in front of us. We've been focusing on Egypt since they received the brunt of the plagues. But one of the main purposes for these plagues is for the benefit of Israel, so that Israel will trust God's provision and tell the story to the nations of the earth. And in fact, we're telling the story right now. I think it worked. Israel, as far as we know, didn't trust God. Moses was beginning to trust God. Aaron probably was getting there. But the -the run-of-the-mill slave, and and, and, uh, Israelite slave, we don't know that they had any faith in God at this point. When God rescues Israel, he provides for them for 40 years by supernaturally providing manna and quail in the wilderness. He made shoes for them. Well, actually, they already had their shoes and clothes. He just made it so that the shoes and clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. I don't even think their moms had to put the patches in the knee like my mom used. They just didn't wear out. Even for teenage boys, that's crazy. When God sends Elijah in 2 Kings to the widow, he says, you're going to stay with this widow. She's going to provide for you. Elijah gets there. This widow says, oh, by the way, I only enough flour and oil for like one meal. And then it's all gone. I have nothing in my house. She doesn't have any faith. She doesn't know to trust God. And Elijah prays, and God multiplies that food so that he could stay there and this woman could eat, and they could eat together for many days. Jesus turns water into wine via a side conversation that the bride and groom had no idea that there was going to be a shortage of wine. He just provides. When Jesus transforms the five loaves and two fishes to feed over 5,000 people, most of those people, I don't think they were expecting a meal. I don't think they had any particular faith, like, oh, it'll be okay, that guy Jesus, he'll just multiply some food. They weren't thinking that. He just provides, because that's the kind of God he is. He's good. He provides good things. There are people in life, and most of us have a relative like this, who just, they just need you to know that they're doing your favor. And sometimes they just bring it up. Remember that time? I, or maybe they give you a Christmas gift, and you or your child didn't thank them properly according to their standards. And so they make sure that you know that the pink outfit with the bedazzled Hello Kitty face, the one with the bedazzling comes out and gets in the pockets of your dress pants, that they gave your kid that. 
God is not like that. You see, sometimes we think of worship as this exercise where God wants us to get together and say how great he is because he needs our encouragement or something. Let me say this as clearly and gently as I know how. God is quite secure in his identity without your praise. He loves you to his death, but he doesn't really need your pep talks. Worship is actually the opposite. Worship happens when you and I realize that our God loves us so ridiculously, so abundantly, provides so richly that our hearts burst with praise and songs come out of our lips and we desire to serve others and to share love with other people. That's worship. It comes out of stuff that God has done first. But I don't always feel worshipful, you might be saying. How do I know you're saying that? Because I say that all the time. Me neither. I don't always feel worshipful. And there's lots of reasons for that. One is, for me, is my own sin. The other reason is that in a fallen system, in a fallen world, many of us deal with past issues that just make it difficult to always believe that God is good. Some of us deal with depression that chemically, it's just difficult to feel, yeah, I want to Woo, God is good. Um, some, I mean, many of us from time to time deal with tremendous stresses that come from a variety of places that make it difficult to have hearts bursting with praise all the time. But most often, when I'm not feeling worshipful and when it's not a medical condition, most often, the reason is because I haven't been giving thanks. I haven't been stopping to consider that, yeah, this is a beautiful place we live in, but God made it. That it's not just a coincidence. You know, my, my kids are really good at that. Samara is fond of saying, you know what? Jesus made me. You know, that's, like, it's, just, it's such a big deal to her, which I'm thankful for that. Um, I still, you know, it's like the more you know, the more you, you have, well, how did he do that? Like, I, I'm a result of my parents and, you know, DNA and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, it, we, we oftentimes don't give thanks. I haven't remembered well when I'm not worshiping well. You know, all it takes is a few minutes, once, twice a day, beginning, end of the day, whenever is good for you. But just to, to take stock in the good things that God has provided. It doesn't have to be spectacular things, but just the good things, the, the, the relationships that you have that are positive, um, the work that you have, and even if your work isn't going well, that you have work. When a lot of people don't have work, you know, what, there's so many things to give praise for. God is good, and every good thing that God provides, or every good thing that happens to you is from God. And this truth in itself, if we're to stop now, that's pretty good news. I think the news gets better. We all feel a tension between a good and loving God and a world that is in so much need. The issue isn't going to be solved from within ourselves. Our world is broken. I mean, we have to come to grips with that. It is deeply entrenched broken um, from the depths of every one of our own hearts to uh, our systems that we've set up, broken people create broken systems. Even the best systems are not perfect. Our hearts are often bent towards selfishness. If left 
to our own devices, we would suffer the natural consequences of our selfish actions as we try and hoard God's good gifts because we're so dang afraid that someone else is going to come get them and that there's not enough for everybody. Like Pharaoh, I, want, I argue that we are too blinded by our own system to see a way out even when the power of the Lord is on display. And what we need, what we absolutely need is a Savior. And that is what the God who provides, provided in Jesus. Jesus picks up on God's provision of bread in the Exodus When he says, I am the bread of life, and the one who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the one who provides everything we need by becoming what we could not possibly become, an obedient image bearer of the Father. And when we receive that good news, that new life through faith, and it frees you and I to be more generous, it frees us to trust more fully that the Father will provide for our needs, especially when we take a risk and share those good things with other people. In Christ, we can become agents of God that reflect his generosity to the world that is, frankly, a world that lives by an economy of scarcity and competition and fear. We can be different because we can trust in the Father. Now, for those of you who are like, I need action steps, bro. Okay, so here, here, here are some things. Take time for Thanksgiving. Take time for Thanksgiving. That will help your worship. Number two. Yes, I have three. Are you afraid, deep down, are you afraid that Jesus won't really be there for you, won't really provide for you? valid fear. I think we all experience it from time to time. If that's where you're at, I encourage you, talk to him about it. Bring it before him in prayer. Say, I am, I am terrified about this thing I think you're calling me to do. I'm terrified that you won't provide for me. See what he has to say to you. He'll talk. He'll impress upon you. He'll bring a scripture or a word to you. He speaks. And the third thing is, is Jesus inviting you to be his agent of blessing in a specific way to someone, to some group? Do you know it? Like, you know, sometimes you're just kind of, like right now, honestly, I kind of feel in a general state. Like I, I've got different things that I'm giving to on a regular basis. I, I try and respond in generosity when I see a need. But I, I'm kind of feeling like I, I'm open to suggestion right now, but there are times in life when, man, you know it, right? right? Like, you know God is calling you to invest in a more risky way, whether it's financially, whether it's with your energy, or ask yourself, are you, are you one of those spots right now? And if so, what's holding you back? So those are three things that you could ponder uh, from this time. Great provider, Father. We thank you for um, stories like this that show us in our face that you are the one true God, and not only that you're the one true God, as if that was just a victory in itself, but the victory for us is that you are the one true God 
who is really, really good. And your disposition is one of love. And your heart's desire is for your children to trust you. I pray, Holy Spirit, for your ministry of opening up our hearts, of penetrating our cynical minds, our distrustful minds, our jaded minds. Help us to trust as we look at the cross and, and, and just see the reality that you stopped at nothing, that you gave your life to rescue us, that you truly provide everything that we need, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, uh, and eternal as well. Bless you, Lord. Do your good work in us, we pray. Amen.